fellow by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse preached for a lot of decades in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, he passed away uh, back in the 90s, but was, was sort of a, a, a pillar in the religious community of Philadelphia. And he preached at a church that was downtown, surrounded by some of the universities of Philadelphia, like Villanova and Temple. And from time to time, as Dr. Barnhouse was preaching, students from the community would come and would listen to his sermons and, and sometimes interact with him. And one Sunday morning, Dr. Barnhouse is preaching, and he's preaching about how in the wandering of the 40 years of the people of Israel, none of their sandals wore out. At the end of that 40 years, they all had the same sandals. And he was talking about the greatness of the power of God and the greatness of God's presence with His people as He was getting them again, faithfully ready to head into the promised land. And then in the middle of this sermon, as he's talking about the sandals in 40 years not wearing out, a student gets up and goes, explain to me how in the world for 40 years these people could wear the same sandal and it not wear out. Well, you can imagine what it was like in that church. I mean, it got tense and everybody got quiet. And Dr. Barnhart removed his glasses, stepped out to the side of the pulpit, and looked at that guy, as he, that student, as he was standing up in the middle of that congregation, and he goes, God! And the student said, oh, I understand. And Dr. Barnhart said, no, no one understands. When we begin preaching through the Bible in a year, you, you begin thinking about how in the world are you going to get all 66 books in 52 weeks? And some of those weeks are being taken away from you. And so you begin to form kind of a mental outline of how you're going to do it. And your mind immediately runs to creation. But, friends, the Bible does not begin with creation. The Bible begins with God. The Bible begins with the God who reveals Himself. Up here on the screen, Genesis 1.1. Say it with me. In the beginning, God. Let's say it one more time. In the beginning, God. God is where the Bible begins. The Bible is not a compendium like Aesop's fables that's filled with all kinds of information and instruction on how you are to live. Now, some of that's in there, but that's not what it is at its heart. If that's what it was, then the Bible would be about you. And it's not. And the Bible is not an anthology of randomly collected ancient documents. As if some archaeologists put together all of these documents and they sort of ended up in the same volume. No, the Bible has a single storyline that is discerned from Genesis to Revelation. And that storyline is God. You know, have you ever seen... Um, uh, you, you know, if you haven't seen it in person, I know you've seen it on television... If you've seen it in person, you know, the pasture can be a very, very loud place. It's a very verbal place. You have, you have cowboys or you have shepherds that are out there in, in the pasture with the herds, whether a herd of sheep or a herd of cows. And what are they doing? They're talking. They say, move them, move them, move them. You know, they're, 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 they're herding these animals along. That's what, in a sense, the Word of God is. All of these words that we read in this book are, are moving us, hurting us, leading us, directing us, uh, pushing us, propelling us, compelling us toward the presence of God and the revelation of God. God is mentioned 32 times in the first 31 verses. And the Bible is a book about God who created the world and watched His good creation devastated by sin 
And then how that God who revealed Himself in Scripture didn't just stay in Scripture and just did not stay in infinity, but He entered the world, re-entered the world to redeem it and then ascended and then will ultimately one day return and restore all things. Now when we think about Genesis, there, it's important to realize that there is a very important historical context, a, a very important historical background. The first audience that encountered Genesis through hearing, through reading, was Israel, the people that God was leading through Moses to the promised land as they were getting ready to get into that land, into the land of the Canaanites. And as they were going into that land, what were they going to encounter? They were going to encounter a sophisticated culture, much more sophisticated than theirs. A year earlier, they had been slaves in Egypt. They were going to encounter a sophisticated culture. They would encounter cities. They would encounter a pantheon of Canaanite gods that would explain to them how the world began, how the world uh, functioned. And not only was that explanation there, but among the Canaanites, it was maintained. And the danger for the people of God would be that as they were going into this land and being confronted by all of this information and this, this diverse, different dichotomy of explanations for the beginning of all things, they would be seduced into worshiping the Creator and the created rather than the Creator. And so why Genesis? Genesis was written to equip Israel. To equip Israel and to get Israel ready with the reality of God, the truth of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God in a world that is tangled and mired in a lot of false little gods. And a multitude of lies about creation and about our significance and our purpose and our own creation. Now we face the same temptation today. The greatest need that we face is not a three-step program or a four-step program to, to greater financial prosperity. or any, The great need that we have today is to delve into the mystery of the greatness and the majesty and the presence of God. To the point that our lives and our hearts and our minds are saturated with thoughts of God. Not that, you know, not to have just enough contact, a superficial contact with God that we can go throughout our week, throughout our day, throughout our task, ignoring God and thus sometimes even bored with God. Even in worship. But every day to press our minds into what it is that God is revealing to us about His presence, the reality of God in everything that we experience. Some years ago, I read it. There was an article that came out in First Things. Uh, it was written by Dr. Charles Meisner. He was writing about Einstein and Einstein's struggle with organized religion. And in this article, Dr. Meisner writes, I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is... One should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent. It shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically a, a very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that the religions he had run across did not have the proper respect for the author of the universe. 
Every time I read that, I'm convicted. Are you? I mean, do we have the proper respect for the greatness of the power and imagination and, and graciousness of the author of the universe? Are we talking about the real thing? When we speak about God, even when we sing to God, are we talking about the real thing or are we just blaspheming when we speak of God? Are we just muddled in our understanding of God? Just think about where the first four words of the Bible take us when it comes to thoughts of God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Which means, number one, that He was without beginning. I have spent most of my adult, my entire adult life and, and most of my entire life as a human being thinking as a finite individual how to understand the infinity. I think trying to understand the, inf the infinite with a finite mind is like an ant trying to figure out, trying, an ant trying to get its brain around a supernova. It's an ant trying to understand a nuclear bomb going off. Now there are a couple of dates that you are never going to be able to discern. You will never discover these in the Bible. The first one is you cannot predict the end of the world in the Bible. And number two, you cannot determine the beginning of God by reading the Bible. He is infinite. He is without beginning. And by the time you get to the story of creation, God's already there. In the beginning, say it church, God. Only God is self-existent. Only God is without a beginning. God is the uncaused cause. He is the uncreated creator. And everything, therefore, is grounded and connected and finds its origin in Him. Our finite minds will never completely understand in this lifetime the infinite. And that's why it takes faith. Over in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were com commended for. Now, what is this writer, this unknown writer, to the Hebrews talking about? He's talking about faith, right? Faith is the confidence and the assurance. Verse 3, it's by that faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. That before there was a universe, there was God. Before there was you, before there was a me, before there was anything that we experience, anything that we taste, see, smell, experience in this life, there was God. And there was God in an area, a, a, a place of infinity that in this finite place we will never fully understand. And when we spend our time reflecting on eternity that way, it changes us. But then number two, and this will feed somewhat into number three, so we won't spend a lot of time here, but number two is not only is He without beginning, but God is without need. I remember growing up and, and hearing Sunday school teachers say, you know how we got here is, you know, God just needed somebody to love. You know, we read in the Bible that God is love. So God needed somebody to love, and so He created you and me. And now that we're created, we need to love God because God loves us. And you know, that sounds really nice, and it sounds... So right, but it's absolutely wrong. It's completely wrong. God doesn't have that kind of need. And, and we'll talk about that in this next point, but Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it 
is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And He is not served by human hands as if He, say the next two words, needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. But God is, number three, love. God is love. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Look at verse 2. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering. That Hebrew word is, is actually fluttering like, like a hen over, over the waters. And we'll talk about that uh, more later. But then God speaks a word. He says, let there be light, let there be the heavens and the earth, the separation, waters, land, all these kinds of things. Let there be birds, let there be you know, things that crawl upon the ground. He speaks a word and creation comes into existence. And then we spin all the way over into the New Testament. And the text, the last text that Corey read for us this morning, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And so we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All of that, the creating God. Genesis chapter 1. Now when you think about other religions, this is where... Christianity and religions of the world are very, very different. Other religions have a unipersonal or a singular notion of God. That is, God is a single unit in which you know there, there, there is no one else. It is, it is God Himself alone. And so what that means, in kind of a practical way of thinking about it, philosophically at least, is that power, power to create comes first. God by Himself, according to other religions in the world, God by Himself with the power to create, that comes first, and then love comes afterwards because the creatures are made. Which means that power has primacy over love because love comes later. But that's not the biblical triune God. The biblical triune God is the three-person Godhead in perfect harmony. Think about the prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. The prayer of Jesus in John 17 speaks of God the Father and God the Son glorifying each other. God the Father will glorify the Son as God the Son has glorified the Father. What does it mean to glorify? I mean, it's an amazing word. It is, it is a word that's just, it's, it's just freighted with all kinds of, of meaning. To glorify means to adore and to love and to honor and to make much of and to praise and to bow before. And it means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the triune Godhead were other-oriented. It means that each, of, each one held the other two at the center of their being and circled around them. Which means, beginninglessly, and I know that's not a word, but you're here when one was invented, Beginninglessly, within the triune Godhead, there was love. And it's out of that love, that is, the relational love, the harmony of the Trinity, 
glorifying each other, loving each other, adoring each other, bowing down before each other, being other-oriented, out of that kind of love, out of that relationship, comes the power for creation. That the universe comes into being out of the context of love. Now, why is that important? And why, what does that have anything to do with us? Think about it this way. Every culture has a hierarchy of values, right? Relationships are nice but don't let them get in the way of personal happiness. Relationships are nice, but don't let them get in the way of garnering power and gathering control and influence, whether it be job or money, achievement or acclaim. Do you know why it's so hard for so many people around the world to do well on the job and to do well in the family? It's because when you put the power before the love or the self-centeredness before the relationship, before the love, what you get is the relationship being diminished. What you get is the relationship being put aside. It's not understanding the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were together in harmony, loving one another, circling around each other. That's why John can say at the other end of the Bible in 1 John chapter 4, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for, say it with me, God is love. Now, wherever you go in this world, there is going to be a a, a flipping of that hierarchy of values. It's going to be about the power. It's going to be about the influence. It's going to be about the self-centeredness or the the self-adoration or the lifting up of self to an extent that all of the other relationships, the importance of love in those relationships, gets diminished and diluted. In the triune God before the creation of the world, there is the putting of others ahead of self. That is the essence of reality, my friends. To defer, to serve, to abdicate. Mutual self-giving. That's why selfishness is at odds with the kingdom of God. Do you know why good marriages work? I mean, you think about a marriage. These couples come in and they want to get married. They want to do premarital counseling. We sit down and we start talking. And one of the first things out of my mouth and the rest of the staff as we talk about about what it means to be married is that you know what? You're going to have a fight. You're going to, in fact, you're going to have a series of fights. And some of them, at some point in the beginning years of that marriage, you're going to go, what have I gotten myself into? And what makes it work? What makes it work? It's when we realize that selfishness is at odds with the kingdom of God. Good marriages work because of self-abdicating spouses. A husband who says, you know, it's not about me. It's about that, that wife. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make much of her. And it's that wife that's saying, you know what? It's not about me. It's about him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to honor him. And then all of a sudden you have two people that are growing intimate with each other by growing closer and closer together as they grow closer to God. Why does this church work? Is it because everybody in these pews is really more interested in power? 
that were really interested in reputation, that were, were more interested in our own self-acclaim and our own achievement that somehow lifts us above everybody else? Or is it because we're a church that is built on the backs of servants? People that have said, it's not about me, it's about God, and I will, be, I will glorify Him with my life. That's how this church works. People serving other people. New Testament scholar by the name of uh, Don Carson writes about this in John 17, this, this prayer of Jesus. He says, there is an other orientation at the heart of God. When Jesus gives Himself in love, in self-sacrifice, crucified for our sins, in our place, for our crimes, you know what He's doing? Yeah, we say, yeah, He's, he's redeeming us. He's making forgiveness available. He's, 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 uh, he's paying the debt. But when Jesus gives Himself in love and self-sacrifice, crucified for our sins, mocked and tortured and suffering according to Scripture, in our place, do you know what He's doing? He's just doing what He has done at home in eternity in glory and gladness for all time. When Jesus died on the cross, He's only doing what He has always done in love. Have we been talking about the right thing when we talk about God in the community church? The greatness of God who is infinite and infinitely powerful and infinitely loving and infinitely holy. Have we been talking about the right thing? That the uncreated, self-sufficient Creator in love became like His creatures in order for them to be recreated. That Christ, the Maker of the heavens and the earth, died in order for us to be remade. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And what that God has promised, through His love and through His patience and His mercy and His compassion, and through His righteousness, what He has promised is that there is one day when we will never have to see God and ever think about in the beginning because it will be for all of eternity. I look forward to that day when we can see God in, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, it's attested that no one has ever seen God face to face. In fact, when Moses wanted to see Him, when Moses... When, when Moses was offered anything, the one thing he wanted was to see God, which in and of itself is a great sermon because if we were offered anything, a billion dollars, the entire state of Texas, uh, whatever it might be, if we were offered anything and we could have it, would we choose God to see God? And that's what Moses did. And God had to put him in a cleft of the rock and shield him as he went by so that he could only see the backside of God's glory and therefore not perish, but to get a sense of the greatness of God. And Moses was never the same after that, physically or spiritually. To think that one day, in all of my finiteness, in all of the limitations of my fallen nature, and the sin that I struggle with in the flesh, you as well, that will receive those glorified bodies that we are going to be remade, recreated to be able to live 
in the presence of God without a whiff of, of sin. Without, without even the, a thought of violence or cruelty or racism or biases or meanness ever again. For me, it just begins with God every day. And for us too. It just begins with God. This morning, we offer an invitation. If you've never come into contact with that God, we want to talk to you about Him. If you've never become a child of this God, a son through salvation, by this God and for this God, for all of eternity, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. What we ask is that during the singing of this song, as we're praising the greatness of this God, who leads us every day, not only to to, to places of rest and quiet waters, but leads us to Himself. As we praise God singing that song, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds. Do it now as we stand and sing. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O word with heavenly comfort fraud. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, He leadeth me, by His own hands He leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by His hands He leadeth me. Sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's bowers bloom. By water still or troubled sea, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, He leadeth me, by His own hands He leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by His hands He leadeth me. Amen. And you may be seated. This morning we got to see uh, Noah Heiston baptized. This last Friday, Roger Dowell had been studying with Jackson Corinta for, uh, for a while. And this last Friday night, he was baptized and has become a part of our church family. Jackson, are you here so we can have you stand and be recognized? Right here. Welcome. Everett and Vicki Heiston would love for us to remember in our prayers James Davis, the doctors have informed James that he is nearing death. James asked that we keep Judy in prayers and the rest of his family as well. And he wishes to thank his church family at Mac for their kindness and support. Stephen Wolf, for those in Salvador, Cariaga, and uh, Arapal, Philippines, 40 more baptisms today, the, uh, the 12th of January. This comes on top of uh, the 50 that were last Sunday morning. God continues to show His glory through the tragic typhoon. And we want to, uh, to continue to pray that God bless those efforts in the Philippines. Janie Thomas asked us to pray this last Sunday that the results from uh, some tests uh, come out in, in her favor. They have. The results came back. There is no tumor. 
Thank you, everyone, for all your prayers. Amen to that. Alyssa Ward for her uncle Andrew and Anna. They just had a baby named Juliet, and I hope they have a wonderful life with a new baby. Jimmy Carter for the people in West Virginia who are struggling to find good water. We certainly want to honor that prayer. The Fernandez family for Lloyd and Victoria asking for prayers in their relationship as they have renewed their vows. And we ask for the blessings of the church on our, our, our marriage. We ask to, uh, God to watch over us. And we certainly want to honor that as well. Paul Rodriguez for, his, uh, for Joshua, his dad, and for some of the, the spiritual issues that his dad is, is facing. The Almonds, uh, thanks for all the love and the support in our first 5K walk run yesterday. It was a huge success. Please pray for those who came out of town. Pray that they have safe travels home. And we certainly want to, to pray for this ministry that they've started, dealing with uh, uh, families who have lost uh, children and uh, how they can reach out into the community and, 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 and really share the, 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 the refreshing and the strength and the consolation that comes from God and from the strength that comes from His people. So we want to, 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 to pray thankfulness on behalf of the almonds as well. And uh, Matt Raisler would like for us to remember his mother, Shirley, in our prayers. Please continue to pray for my mom. She is in Stone Oak Methodist, recovering from some surgery. Ellen Bystrom for Fran Fedek, her daughter. Fran continues, she writes, to have medical issues uh, uh, stemming back to her ruptured appendix last February. Please pray for, for her and the doctors as they determine treatment for her. And that's for Ellen Bystrom's daughter, Fran Fedek. Debbie Grady for Dequavia Chrisman and newborn daughter. Dequavia is now at home, but her daughter remains in ICU in Dallas, Texas. Continue to pray for this family. And uh, we're certainly going to, to, to do that today. The shepherds are going during the singing of this next song. Go to their conference room. They'll spend a longer season of prayer over this. We're going to sing one more song. If you'd like to join them, you're dismissed to their conference room as well. And then um, Gilbert Perez has our closing prayer this morning. Let's stand and praise God together.